This is Dr. Marty Freed, Dr. Shreya Trivedi, and Dr. Carrie Blum. This is the Core IM Five Pearls podcast, brought to you by Clinical Correlations, bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. Today, we are talking about iron deficiency anemia. Special thank you to Dr. Poles, an associate professor and program director of NYU's GI, as well as David Green, a hematologist at NYU. Both have peer-reviewed this podcast. Also, shout out to Dr. Shapiro, editor-in-chief of Clinical Correlations. All right, let's get started with five questions on the pearls we'll be covering. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Question one, screening for iron deficiency anemia. Should patients be screened for iron deficiency? If so, who and how often? Question two, referral for a diagnostic endoscopy. What are the indications for referral for a diagnostic endoscopy? Question three, dosing for oral iron. How should you advise patients to take oral iron? What is optimal dosing? Question four, indications for IV iron. What patients would you consider IV iron in? What are the risks? And question five, a throwback question. What is a medication overuse headache? So screening patients for iron deficiency is not something I usually think of proactively doing because so many patients get CBCs. It's something more that I reactively do as I find I'm chasing down these hemoglobins less than 11 in my females or 13 in my males. Yeah, so pretty much anyone who walks into the ER and will most likely get a CBC if labs are drawn. And there are tons of PCPs out there who are still sending CBCs with yearly annual exams. So is there consensus among experts at who should get a screening CBC? So the USPSTF actually has never commented on screening in the general adult population for this before. They do comment on screening in pregnant women and children, but there's insufficient evidence to make a recommendation. All right. I don't know much about pregos or children. I'm an internist. But the CDC says yes. Screen non-pregnant premenopausal women every 5 to 10 years using a hemoglobin or hematocrit. And say a woman has risk factors for iron deficiency such as a personal history of it or heavy menstrual periods, maybe think about screening more often, i.e. yearly. However, it's important to keep in mind that these recommendations don't appear to be based on a rigorous trial, but rather on the high prevalence of the disease in this population, somewhere around 10%, and also the low cost of the tests, the relative ease and effectiveness of treatment. This recommendation is quite old and hasn't been updated since 1998. All right, so the bottom line here is asymptomatic patients at high risk for iron deficiency of anemia should probably be screened. But recognize this recommendation is based on outdated professional society guidelines. The interval of repeat screening is also not clear. Anywhere from 5 to 10 years, or if higher risk, screen yearly. Okay, so you have a patient who you find is anemic with additional labs revealing that they are, in fact, iron deficient. Low ferritin low transferrin saturation. Does this patient require diagnostic endoscopy? Luckily, the British Society of Gastroenterology has formal recommendations that can guide us. Both upper and lower endoscopy should generally be performed in all postmenopausal females and men of any age with iron deficiency anemia. Hmm. So sounds like the decision to screen depends more on the demographic these patients fall into. Right. One way to think of this is in terms of positive likelihood ratio. There's data from N. Haynes that estimates the positive likelihood ratios for GI malignancy in various demographics with iron deficiency anemia. 
So if you look at premenopausal women with iron deficiency anemia, there were no cases of malignancy. Among postmenopausal women with iron deficiency anemia, 0.2% had GI malignancies discovered. And men with iron deficiency anemia were at an even higher risk. 2% had GI malignancies. So from these data, we can gather that finding iron deficiency anemia in premenopausal women doesn't really increase the risk of a GI malignancy. But for men and postmenopausal women, the presence of iron deficiency anemia increases the likelihood that the patient has a GI malignancy by 10 times. Hmm. That being said, every patient's different. So don't ignore concerning family history or other risk factors for malignancy in your premenopausal women, especially as we're finding more and more young patients are being diagnosed with colon cancer. So true. Prior data can guide us, but it's important to look at each case individually. But the key teaching point for me from the British guidelines that Carrie just went over is to do scoping from both ends. I'm not sure I would have referred for both upper and lower endoscopy. Honestly, my knee-jerk reaction would have been, crap, I need to rule out colon cancer as a cause of blood loss. But I really might have forgotten about the upper GI causes of blood loss too. And studies show that you're probably not the only one, Shreya. A cohort of men in postmenopausal women from primary care clinics provides more evidence for performing both upper and lower endoscopy. They found that less than half of patients with iron deficiency anemia were referred for endoscopy within three months, and even fewer were scoped from both ends. More notably, the authors did find several cases of missed malignancy in the population that was not scoped. Yeesh, no bueno. Back to our case. So say this patient of ours who is anemic and iron deficient on labs is in fact premenopausal with menorrhagia. In the past, I might have given ferrous sulfate TID and call it a day, but I feel like there's more to the story than that. There are some things that are widely agreed upon and things you should tell your patients when prescribing oral iron. Number one, tell them iron should not be taken with foods that interfere with its absorption. This is true because foods that are high in calcium reduce iron absorption. So not just milk and cheese, but other calcium-rich foods, such as greens, like kale and broccoli, or salmon, or even almonds. Ah, that sounds like my very basic breakfast, lunch, and dinner, probably in that exact order. Oh man, that does not sound like mine, and I wish my patients ate like that. But either way, just make it simple for your patients and recommend not to have their iron with food. The second thing you should likely say to your patients is, have it with citrus or vitamin C. Remember, most dietary iron is in ferric, 3-plus form, and in the acidic environment of the stomach becomes ferrous, 2-plus form, which is much more easily absorbed. So ascorbic acid or vitamin C has been theorized to help improve absorption. And increasing doses of vitamin C have actually shown a dose-dependent response to iron absorption when taken together in healthy volunteers. It ranges from no change in ferrous sulfate absorption with vitamin C with lower doses to a 48% increase in elemental iron with higher doses of vitamin C. Oh man, you guys are bringing me back to the biochem days with the ferric and ferrous iron forms. In that regard, it's not a good idea to mix taking iron with antacids or PPIs. This would make it a less acidic environment and keep the iron in a ferric or 3 plus form, which is less readily absorbed. Lastly, it is agreed upon to avoid the enteric-coated formulations, which are released too distally in the GI tract. Pop quiz, where is iron absorbed? Hmm, proximal, proximal duodenum. duodenum. Right, and because it's released distal to the proximal duodenum, the estimated bioavailability of the enteric-coated preparation was only 30% of the regular oral preparation. 
These enteric-coated formulations are marketed to decrease prevalence of GI upset and reduce dosing schedule, but comes at a cost of its absorption. I had this patient who had been taking over-the-counter iron, and despite her taking for months and being compliant with it daily, her iron studies did not budge. And there I was about to order celiac and all these other tests, and thankfully she pulled out her pill bottle from her purse and I saw that it was the enteric-coated kind. We got her on the regular iron preparation and saw a much better improvement in her symptoms and her labs. Nice save, Shreya. You know, one thing that is not widely agreed upon is the best dose. A commonly used regimen is iron sulfate 325 milligrams TID, or three times a day. This regimen contains approximately 200 milligrams of elemental iron a day, of which only approximately 25 milligrams of this is actually absorbed. Wow, I didn't realize only 10% of iron is actually absorbed. Yeah, and that's the reason behind the less than ideal dosing of three pills a day. But now there's debate about the optimal way to reverse iron deficiency. A randomized controlled trial in the American Journal of Medicine in 2005 showed that incrementally higher doses of 15, 50, or 150 milligrams of elemental iron in patients older than 80 all produced the same increase in hemoglobin and ferritin by 60 days. And the only significant difference was... Drumroll! Increased side effects of abdominal discomfort, nausea, and constipation in the high-dose group. So that study suggests that the elderly may benefit equally from fewer pills of iron without sacrificing effectiveness and reducing the GI side effects. So this makes me feel a lot more comfortable starting at a low dose and if tolerated, going up. And here's even more evidence that may change the current paradigm of iron dosing. A study in blood in 2015 looked at iron absorption in 54 non-anemic iron-deficient women. The study authors gave radio-labeled oral iron at various doses and various intervals. Blood was then drawn and tracer was measured to determine how much iron was absorbed and whether this correlated with hepcidin levels. Do you guys remember hepcidin back from step one? Oh, yeah. It's a protein that increases with serum iron levels and blocks iron absorption from the gut. So the study found that hepcidin levels strongly negatively correlated with the percent of iron absorbed and that any dose with greater than 60 milligrams of elemental iron the equivalent of one pill of 325 milligrams of ferrous sulfate, produces a hepcidin increase that lasts between one and two days. So what are the implications of that study? Since hepcidin effects fades by about 48 hours, perhaps iron should actually be given every other day. But we do still need more data on the efficacy and adherence to these schedules. Great point, Marty. This is really an intriguing basic science study that may have more important clinical implications. The jury's still out, though, and this will definitely make me more forgiving if my patient can't tolerate two times or three times a day dosing. Perhaps we should even be starting patients on every other day dosing, especially if they can't tolerate the GI side effects. And I guess the last thing we should cover is how long to replete for. For sure. There are many different organizational guidelines that address iron deficiency in general and repletion duration specifically. But generally, I'd say it's a good idea to replete three to six months to target ferritin of 100 or transferrin saturation of 20%. We'll link a systematic review of guidelines in the show notes. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, 
chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash Coriam50. Use the code Coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code Coriam50 at factormeals.com slash Coriam50. Guys, great discussion on oral iron. But to switch gears, who are good candidates for IV iron? So most people who get IV iron fall into one of three categories. First, you have your patients who have poor tolerance of oral iron due to side effects, primarily constipation that's not relieved with a stool softener. Then your second group are your malabsorbers, such as your celiac disease patients or IBD patients, or even post-bariatric surgery patients. And lastly, your third group are those whose rate of iron loss is difficult to keep up with using oral iron. Yeah, I had this young female with a hemoglobin of 8 from heavy menstruation, really symptomatic with fatigue despite trying many different OCPs to control her bleeding. So while ob was trying to figure out the best OCP for her, we decided to get her on IV iron infusion, and she felt much better after. That's a great example of ongoing blood loss. The other patients in whom you'd want to think of IV iron for is your dialysis patients or CKD patients on erythropoietin. They have a loss of iron due to lots of phlebotomy and blood left in the HD circuit, which deplete iron stores. Studies estimate that end-stage renal disease patients have an average loss of 2 grams per deciliter of hemoglobin annually. In addition to those reasons, you have to remember that these end-stage renal patients are often on calcium-containing phosphate binders, which interfere with iron absorption. And for that reason, CKD patients are at very high risk for iron deficiency anemia. But the good thing is that your dialysis patients interface with the medical system at least three times a week, which makes it very convenient to give IV iron. Okay. Now I know IV iron is an option for my patients who can't tolerate oral iron GI side effects, have malabsorptive disorders, end-stage renal disease, or have ongoing iron loss. But here's my hesitation with using it. Is it safe? Yes, and probably much more safe than people think. IV iron has a bad reputation for causing anaphylaxis or other infusion reactions. This was a problem back in the day when high molecular weight iron dextran was used. Now this drug is no longer available, and the new formulations have a much lower incidence of adverse reactions. A 2015 systematic review looked at the safety of IV iron prep. Over 103 trials found that no increased risk of severe adverse effects with IV iron. In fact, the incidence of severe adverse reactions, such such as anaphylaxis, is less than 1 in 200,000 for IV iron that did not include that high molecular weight iron dextran. Now let's compare that to giving pack red blood cells which we'll eventually have to do if her hemoglobin drops below 7. The severe adverse events rate for infusion with packed red blood cells is 1 in 21,000, according to 2012 data. That's really interesting food for thought when you put the incidence of serious reactions from IV iron and IV packed red blood cells next to each other. I think the takeaway here is that the risk of reactions with IV iron is quite low. 
So for our throwback question from our five pearls on headaches, let's review medication overuse headache. Yeah, let's go over that one. That was the one you guys said you knew the least. And now, as Marty knows very intimately... Super high yields for the boards. Yep. So a medication overuse headache is going to happen when a patient already has a pre-existing headache disorder, and they're using these abortive medications in very high frequencies. And you're going to notice they're episodic headache changes to chronic or almost daily in nature, like 15 or more days a month. So the key feature is increased frequency of headaches in the context of using lots of abortive medications. Be alert to medication overuse headache if your patient is using abortive medications more than 10 times a month. That means basically two to three times a week. So we just defined medication overuse headache. This is not to be confused with medication-induced headache. Common drugs that induce headaches include nitrites, phosphodiesterase inhibitors, or hormones. All right, let's get to the takeaway points. Pearl 1. Asymptomatic patients at high risk of iron deficiency anemia should probably be screened, but this recommendation is not evidence-based and is based on outdated professional society guidelines. The interval of repeat screening is also not clear. Pearl 2. Men and postmenopausal women without a history of overt bleeding should be referred for both upper and lower endoscopy. There is a decent chance of malignancy and even greater chance of other GI pathology that can be intervened upon. Pearl 3. The exact optimal dose of oral iron is not known and likely depends on the individual patient. But when choosing a dose, one should consider the pharmacology of hepcidin-induced malabsorption and balance this with the patient's side effect burden. Pearl 4. IV iron is safe without increased risk for significant adverse reaction or infection. It is quicker and more effective than oral iron in repleting stores and should be routinely used in the appropriate populations. For example, those poorly tolerating oral iron, side effects, malabsorptive diseases, and stage renal disease, or ongoing blood loss that oral iron cannot keep up with. Pearl 5. If you notice your patient's headache changes from intermittent to a chronic daily headache, while using lots of abortive medications, consider medication overuse headache. All right, thanks for listening. If you have any questions, please email us at coreimpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at, at coreimpodcast. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at coreimpodcast. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care. All right. Thanks for joining us. See you guys next Wednesday. Take care. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 